0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. In 2014,
1: Russian forces seized Crimea paving the way for President Vladimir Putin's annexation of the Ukrainian peninsula.
2: Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean peninsula.
3: And next, we turn tonight to the tension rising around the world as Russian President Vladimir Putin casts his shadow across the boundary of Europe and Russia. Tonight, his
1: troops are holding firm in a corner of Ukraine known as Crimea. A large number of world leaders and international organizations condemn the invasion as illegal.
4: President Obama strongly condemned Moscow's incursion into the Crimea and said that steps to isolate Russia diplomatically and economically will be examined if there is no change in policy. As EU leaders prepare for an emergency summit on Ukraine, a key question remains. Should Russia be punished for its incursions into Crimea? And if so, how?
1: But Putin and other senior Russian officials were never prosecuted in any court of international law for the crime of aggression. The use of armed force against another country without defensive necessity. Eight years later, Russia did it again, invading mainland Ukraine in February.
2: This is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine as the sun came up this morning.
0: Overnight in the capital of Ukraine, the sound of missile strikes and air sirens. Explosions rocking several cities, including the capital of Kyiv, targeting military installations,
1: including air bases housing fighter jets. Two weeks ago, Putin declared the annexation of four regions of Ukraine that Russian forces occupy. The invasion and the recent annexation are illegal under international law, as was the invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. Yet other countries, including the U.S., May resist prosecuting Putin for the crime of aggression, fearing setting a precedent that could boomerang against them. This is intercepted. I'm Alicia Speri, a reporter with The Intercept. For years, I've been covering national security, human rights, and conflicts around the world. When Russia began invading Ukraine, world leaders quickly denounced the aggression. Russia's actions threatened not only Ukraine, but also the principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity that form the basis for the peaceful coexistence of nations. Yet whether these acts of aggression will be prosecuted this time around remains in question. That's because prosecuting the crime of aggression would not put a lowly soldier or mid-level officer on the stand. Rather, Russia's highest-ranking military and political officials could be prosecuted, all the way to Putin himself. Over the last eight months, evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity by Russian forces has piled up. Some officials, including U.S. President Joe Biden, have gone as far as to call Russia's actions in Ukraine a, quote, genocide, a claim some experts have disputed. Investigations into the alleged crimes are well underway by Ukrainian prosecutors, foreign countries, international organizations, and the International Criminal Court, among others. But whether anyone will prosecute those chiefly responsible for the aggression itself, and under which jurisdiction, is still unclear.
4: The question you just asked is a question on everyone's mind, and there's not one answer to it.
1: That's Nathaniel Raymond, a human rights investigator who is analyzing evidence of Russian atrocities in Ukraine as part of a Yale School of Public Health initiative supported by the U.S. State Department.
4: What is more important, right, is it catching
2: the colonel level in charge of the artillery assault on Mariupol, or is it Putin? None of this will be happening. Russia had not um, invaded.
1: And that's Philip Sands, a prominent international law specialist at the University College London.
2: Crimes against humanity are as terrible as genocide. I don't believe in a hierarchy of horrors. But I think the moment you use genocide, everyone pays attention because people think it's the worst of all the crimes. It's not actually, I don't think. I think in this case, the worst of all crimes is the crime of aggression. We wouldn't have any of these other crimes unless the war had been initiated. And the danger that we face is that in five years' time, we will have, you know, three or four trials of low-grade, useless sorts of characters that are totally irrelevant. And the top people just get off scot-free. And I put the finger of blame on this, on the big countries. They've done nothing.
1: The International Criminal Court's involvement in Ukraine has garnered the support of countries long hostile to the court, including the United States, which, like Russia and Ukraine, is not a member of the ICC. Dozens of countries have pledged support and roughly $20 million for the court's efforts in Ukraine. While little is known about the scope of the ICC's investigation, the court has jurisdiction over war crimes and crimes against humanity, but it cannot prosecute the crime of aggression against nationals of a non-member state or without a referral from the United Nations Security Council. Russia, which holds veto power on the Security Council, would certainly stand in the way. But other countries, including the U.S., may not look favorably on the prospect of prosecuting Putin for the crime of aggression, for fear of setting a precedent that could boomerang against them.
2: They don't want to deal with the crime of aggression, and they don't want to deal with the crime of aggression because they know that if it's used against Russia, a permanent member of the Security Council today, it might be used against them tomorrow. And the big elephant in the room is Iraq, which was also a manifestly illegal war, Um, and produced a very different response in Britain and the United States. So it's just basically a total double standard in terms of the whole thing.
1: So in practice, that renders the ICC powerless to prosecute the crime that many Ukrainians and observers argue has enabled all others.
5: The crime of aggression is the mother crime. And uh, if there is no this unprovoked war uh, and aggression, there would be no further crimes, uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity.
1: Tatiana Pechanchik heads the Ukrainian human rights group Zmina.
5: In the existing framework of the international accountability mechanism, there is no accountability for the crime of aggression.
1: Currently, there is no international body with the authority to hold individuals criminally responsible for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. The International Court of Justice, the official court of the UN, handles disputes between states rather than individuals. And Russia has ignored the court's rulings in the past. That's why Ukrainian authorities have intensified calls for a special tribunal to prosecute Russian aggression.
3: A standing ovation for Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky at the UN General Assembly in New York.
5: A special tribunal should be created to punish Russia for the crime of aggression against our state. This will become signal to all would-be aggressors that they must value peace or be brought to responsibility by the world.
1: These calls have long been supported by dozens of Ukrainian civil society groups and by a growing chorus of international experts who have drafted proposals outlining what that tribunal might look like. I spoke with Wayne Jordash, an international humanitarian law attorney with years of experience in international courts and tribunals.
4: In order to do that, properly, we need to have, you know, a real focus on individuals at the higher military and political um, echelons. And so you've got a similar problem, uh, which is uh, a lot of focus is on uh, the lower uh, perpetrators, not the higher ones.
1: A handful of countries have so far voiced their support for such a tribunal, and Ukrainian officials have been lobbying to get more on board.
4: And obviously, Ukraine and various international lawyers and um, e- European actors support the idea of a new tribunal is that there would be then this additional focus on the what would end up being a handful of um, political and military actors um, who are alleged uh, suspected of being involved in the planning and implementation of the invasion itself.
1: The body could be established through the UN with a vote in the General Assembly authorizing the secretary-general to work with Ukrainian authorities to set up a special tribunal.
2: The General Assembly is now voting on draft resolution a eleven In March,
1: 140 nations voted in favor of a resolution denouncing Russian aggression, theoretically paving the way for more concrete action.
2: Like that. The voting has been completed. Please lock the machine. The result
1: of the vote is
3: as follows.
1: The tribunal could also be established through a regional framework at the European level. So far, a number of resolutions, including from the European Parliament and the Council of Europe, have backed the establishment of a special tribunal. But broader political consensus is needed to translate those statements into action. The prosecution of war crimes and crimes against humanity is based on the review of expansive amounts of evidence and witness testimony, and can take years to complete. But to build a case for the crime of aggression is a relatively quick process. Here is Pichonchik, again, the Ukrainian rumor-rights activist
5: the tribunal on the crime of
1: aggression,
5: has to be set up. It's, uh, it would not take very long time because the crime of aggression is obvious. The evidence are on the surface and the process should be quick.
1: But, Pechanczyk says, they would need consensus and resources. Still, prosecuting the crime of aggression is an untested endeavor, as well as potentially a politically unpopular one. Since the time of the Nuremberg trials and Tokyo war crimes trial after World War II, there's been no attempt by an international body to prosecute it. There have, of course, been instances of aggression. As the United States and its allies prepared to invade Iraq in 2003, a number of international bodies denounced the invasion.
2: French President Jacques Chirac let no one be in any doubt. France could see no reason in March 2003 for going to war with Iraq. The UN weapons inspection regime was working,
4: and the threat posed by Saddam Hussein had been significantly degraded.
1: The International Commission of Jurists expressed, quote, its deep dismay that a small number of states are poised to launch an outright illegal invasion of Iraq, which amounts to a war of aggression. Later, the UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, ...called the invasion, quote, illegal and a violation of the UN Charter.
3: Uh, I have uh, uh, indicated that um, it would be unwise to uh, attack Iraq now... ...and it will raise uh, international uh, tensions.
1: But there was no international mechanism in place... ...with the authority to prosecute the leaders of that invasion... ...and even less political appetite to make that happen. The war in Iraq continued leading to widespread allegations of abuse.
2: Civilian casualties, 100,000 according to one tabulation, greater than numbers previously made public, many killed by American troops, but most of them by other Iraqis. Cole
0: spent more than two years investigating accounts of ghastly atrocities committed by members of the unit, including mutilating corpses, skinnings, and attempted beheadings. A U.S. Marine went on trial today at Camp Pendleton in California in the killing of 24 unarmed civilians in Iraq. It happened in 2005, and it's been described as an atrocity by U.S. troops there.
1: Calls to hold accountable those responsible, including President George W. Bush and British Prime Minister Tony Blair, were mostly relegated to activist and anti-war circles. Prosecuting some prominent figures today over the crime of aggression, when others were not prosecuted in the past, would inevitably raise legitimate questions of consistency and bias. But experts argue that reversing the pattern of non-prosecution is more important than ever to set a precedent that could help deter future aggression. Details about what a special tribunal would look like, under whose mandate it would operate, and which other crimes it would tackle, are unclear at the moment. It's also unclear whether the tribunal would replace ongoing local and international investigations or work alongside them. Some experts have argued that existing courts and mechanisms should be fully supported before new ones are set up. The U.S. and its key Western allies have hesitated to take a position. I reached out to the State Department and a spokesperson told me that the administration is, quote, carefully reviewing a proposal for a special tribunal. Then they added, quote, we are absolutely committed to bringing those who are responsible to justice. A spokesperson for the UK Foreign Office did not address questions about British support for a special tribunal, emphasising instead support for war crimes investigations. The spokesperson referred me to a statement made by the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverley at a recent meeting of the UN Security Council.
2: We must make clear to President Putin that his attack... On the Ukrainian people must stop, that there can be no impunity for those perpetrating atrocities, and that he must withdraw from Ukraine and restore regional and global stability.
1: The prospect of a special tribunal has raised the concern of the ICC Prosecutor General, Karim Khan, who has been struggling to restore the court's legitimacy after years of criticism. Notably, Criticism that the court, for a long time, has only prosecuted Africans.
4: But critics say it's obsessed with targeting only African leaders, and several member nations of the African Union are threatening to pull out. So, is the ICC selectively biased against Africa and giving Western governments a pass? Or would shutting the whole thing down be a blessing for war criminals and human rights violators across the globe?
3: Several African states have accused the ICC of unfairly targeting the continent.
1: Uganda's president went so far as to call it useless. In recent years, the court has launched a number of new inquiries, including into alleged Israeli crimes in Palestine. It also opened, and then closed, preliminary probes into alleged British crimes in Iraq. Since the UK is a founding member of the ICC, this gave the court jurisdiction in this case, but because neither Iraq nor the US are members, the court couldn't investigate US crimes there. The investigations into Israeli crimes in Palestine and British crimes in Iraq have faced fierce opposition, contributing to a perception that the ICC cannot take on the world's most powerful countries.
2: The United States is facing criticism around the world for its latest threats against the International Criminal Court. President Donald Trump has signed an executive order sanctioning the ICC staff and their families. The US, which is not a member of the Hague-based tribunal, is angry at investigations into suspected war crimes in Afghanistan that could implicate its soldiers. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority.
1: Last year, I reported about how the US went to great lengths to derail an icc investigation into its own crimes and those committed by allies in afghanistan this led to the icc deprioritizing the probe into us actions further contributing to the criticism here's jurdash again the humanitarian law attorney
4: the icc prosecutor is fighting a, a battle to be relevant and effective and show that the icc prosecution is is a viable investigative, prosecutorial mode of operating, you know, in, in light of its long history of not being those things.
1: Jordash added that regional tribunals tend to redirect resources from other accountability processes, including local prosecutions and truth and reconciliation initiatives.
4: You know obviously a lot of what the, any new tribunal would do would be to be looking at the precise relationship between higher political and military leaders in the kremlin or around the kremlin and their role in the war and obviously that would overlap with any investigations by the icc prosecutor into the culpability of individuals for the crimes that have been committed um, and the violations of international humanitarian law in ukraine so you know, they won't be doing the same thing, but there'll be a public perception, if, if not handled properly, that they are doing the, the same or similar things.
1: A new tribunal could distract other efforts of accountability and deplete resources that the ICC prosecutor needs. A spokesperson for the ICC prosecutor did not respond to a request for comment. The ICC first opened an inquiry in Ukraine in 2014 after receiving permission from Ukrainian authorities to do so. This year, the ICC formally launched an expanded investigation. So far, little detail is available about the focus of their work in Ukraine. Others engaged in similar efforts, like a multi-country joint investigation team, have also revealed little about their investigations.
4: There's a lot of um, noise and not that much is been as yet translated into um, discernible action on the ground in, in Ukraine or uh, translated into real support for the Ukrainian prosecution.
1: That's Jordash again.
4: I think despite a lot of the rhetoric that we hear from both international actors and also some national actors, you know, are at their very beginning. In fact, I would say you know, build, building viable cases against um, those who are f- further from the ground and up the chain of command in the political and military sphere really hasn't begun in earnest yet um, and frankly I think there's a sort of lack of understanding as to the need and how to do that
1: Regional prosecutors in Ukraine have struggled to tackle the overwhelming amount of evidence they and others are gathering. In Bucha, when Russian forces first retreated, local police found themselves handling evidence of mass torture and killings.
4: And so we are in a very difficult, they are in a very difficult position in terms of six months ago, they hadn't had um, mass grave forensic teams stood up. They hadn't had the type of line prosecutors stood up to these and the type of of survivor assistance resources needed.
1: That's Raymond, the human rights investigator.
4: And so we're looking at a retrofit in the middle of a war of an entire law enforcement community.
1: And that's where the international community comes in. The investigation and prosecution of war crimes is a highly specialized area of expertise, successful documentation and prosecution is a complex endeavor that requires the coordination of a number of players here's Jordash.
4: instead of this frenzied documentation which was what we see now what we need to see is more collaboration and more openness and more um, uh, cooperation between you know these three you know, principal components of effective investigations that you know local prosecutors civil society and international experts.
1: When Ukrainian soldiers wrestled back control of the eastern city of Izum in September, they found a devastated city and hundreds of dead bodies, including more than 440 in a mass grave. The scale of the suffering here is only starting to emerge as police return to the streets now Russia's occupation has ended.
3: Investigators searching through a mass grave in Ukraine say f- they've found evidence that some of the dead were tortured. The site near Izium, recently liberated from Russian forces, appears to be one of the largest discovered in Ukraine yet. But Ukrainian authorities warned that their investigation was just
1: beginning. The scale of the horror was even greater than already shocking evidence that had emerged when Russian troops retreated from other parts of the country months earlier. Anton Gerashenko, an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Internal Affairs, said, quote, this tragedy is even worse than the tragedy in Bucha. He was referring to the city near Kyiv that up until the Isium discovery was the emblem for the atrocities perpetrated by Russian forces. Many quickly pointed to more horrors likely to remain undiscovered in cities and villages that are still under Russian control. Dozens of Ukrainian investigators, dressed in hospital gowns and carrying shovels, have begun to exhume the desiccated bodies in Izium. Questions that for months had preoccupied Ukrainian and foreign officials, as well as local and international human rights groups, came to the forefront once again. What would justice for the dead in Izium and their loved ones look like? How would both those materially responsible and those who gave them orders be held accountable? And whose job was it to deliver that justice? Ukraine's prosecutor general, faced with the enormous task of documenting the abuses in the midst of an active conflict, said last month that his office has gathered evidence of more than 34,000 potential war crimes. A colossal figure no law enforcement authority can realistically be expected to fully investigate, let alone prosecute. While some experts caution that not all of those crimes may meet the legal definition of war crime, they recognize the scale of the evidence is staggering. Some of the people working on documentation efforts in Ukraine have referred to the ever-growing list of groups and institutions involved as a bit of a circus. Others caution that the effort could turn into an unhelpful competition for funding and access. But there is plenty of work to be done, they also pointed out and many groups have begun to tackle issues of cooperation, transparency and burden-sharing.
5: So that's true that we have uh, uh, very many different actors, uh, but also from the other uh, point of view, we have uh, a tremendous scale of uh, disaster, uh, thousands of war crimes uh, which uh, uh, have been committed in Ukraine.
1: Kachanchik, the Ukrainian human rights activist, at it setting a precedent, is just as vital.
5: This is important only to convince other nations, other countries, that uh, something terrible is happening in Ukraine. It's important only to build up the solidarity and consensus to uh, withstand the Russian uh, armed aggression, to form a support to Ukraine, just to show other... People, some non-biased, non-partial information, Ukrainians, but from some, like, intergovernmental mm-hmm. institution, what is happening. But that's all. That is, it's important to, you know, keep up others with, like, informing and being united, but not to stop, to stop Russia directly.
1: While the most recent invasion has brought scores of foreign investigators to Ukraine, civil society groups there had been engaged in the same documentation effort since 2014 with far less international interest and support. from
5: from the first uh, uh, days and months of the occupation of Crimea and war in Donbass, we were calling to impose very strict sanctions on the Russian Federation, on its economy. We were calling to switch off the SWIFT so the bank system of Russian Federation cannot exchange with uh, other countries. And uh, no one was listening to us seriously and uh, if sanctions were imposed, these were sanctions uh, rather uh, like focusing on some individuals, Mm -hmm. Without uh, uh, hitting the sectors of the Russian uh, economy, and uh, democratic countries continue to have trade with Russian Federation to buy oil, gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, Russia used these eight years uh, to. Pump up its war machine and uh, they prepared the new aggression. So now we are paying with uh, many of uh, uh, lives of our people. Uh, and now it looks like some things that we were calling and saying these eight years, they uh, became more clear for uh, other uh, democratic governments, but unfortunately uh, for us it's too late because they are already paying an ultimate price.
1: What's at stake in Ukraine, she added, is not only justice for Ukrainians, but also the credibility of the very apparatus of international accountability. The failure of existing mechanisms to stop the war, is the reason why she and other human rights activists have joined Ukrainian authorities in calling for international support of Ukraine's military.
5: As human rights defenders, as lawyers, many people who believed in these principles. That means that uh, this just this is useless. This means that only guns have uh, power, and we as human rights defenders from Ukraine, we already know it. That you know the the. The, 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 there is only a language of uh, force and uh, like economic sanctions that can be used when you deal with Russia, and that's why you know we we uh, we were criticized, uh, I, especially in the first months of the of the war of this new wave of aggression, uh, when we were calling and supporting these human rights defenders to provide weapons to Ukraine. Uh, nothing else is is working.
1: Pichanchik is not the only human rights activist calling for weapons.
3: I spent 20 years to defend human rights and freedom. And now I have no legal instrument which is worth in this situation. The whole UN system wouldn't stop the Russian atrocity.
1: That's Oleksandra Madvychuka, a Ukrainian human rights attorney and head of the Center for Civil Liberties, a prominent human rights group which this month was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize.
3: And first of all, we need to survive. And that's why we need weapons, and especially long-range distance weapon in efficient amount. Because we need to stop Russian troops, where the horror against civilians is still going on. What we need today, we need weapons. Maybe it's very weird to hear from human rights lawyer.
1: When Russia launched its invasion, the Center for Civil Liberties, which had been monitoring Russian offenses since the invasion of Crimea, relied on volunteers across the country to document abuses, including some operating underground from areas under Russian control. The volunteers used a simple questionnaire to gather information and recorded video or audio testimonies of victims and witnesses with contact information for trained investigators to follow up. They said they have documented more than 18,000 alleged crimes. You're doing this with kind of like... An eye toward like a legal process or is it more of like um just like a collecting a public record of what happened
3: it's very good question and i ask this question to myself for whom we documented all these war crimes because we are not historians we don't do it for national archives we do it for future justice and um well, i see the clear gap of accountability uh, we wouldn't rely upon on international criminal court in this regard because ICC will limits itself only to several selected cases. So the question is, who will deliver justice for hundreds and so- of thousands of victims of war crimes?
1: Widely available technology has made gathering documentation more accessible, but what to do with that vast amount of evidence remains less clear
3: now each people can be a documentator because some photos and videos which people do on their own telephone is very crucial essential in future so the now we have in 21 century uh, because of technology a lot of uh, ways how to document war crimes what is still left in 21 century is effective mechanism how to bring perpetrators to justice
1: the failure to bring perpetrators to justice emboldens them to carry out greater abuses.
3: All this hell which we observe in Ukraine is a result of total impunity, which Russia enjoyed for decades, because Russian army committed the same war crimes in Chechnya, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Mali, in Libya, in Syria, and they have never punished.
1: Human Rights Watch noted that some of the same tactics Russia deployed in Syria, like the indiscriminate use of airstrikes, targeting of medical facilities, and use of weapons like cluster munitions, offered a playbook for its subsequent actions in Ukraine. Russian crimes in Syria received far less attention and calls for accountability than similar crimes in Ukraine are now prompting. But accountability matters precisely because its absence inevitably yields more abuses, rights observers stress. That's why those seeking accountability for the crimes committed in Ukraine should also focus on another fundamental question. Here's Raymond again.
4: How do we make Ukraine a precedent-setter that can apply, that can help other places where accountability is needed and not a one-off? That, for me, is the big question. Is this a one-off or is this a precedent?
1: He and others caution that the international legal system is only one avenue toward justice. Even with large amounts of evidence, Prosecutions are no guarantee of a conviction, and there are risks to investing in trials as the only way to achieve accountability.
4: Justice matters even when you don't know whether it's going to succeed. You have to do it. It's a practice. Justice is a practice.
1: And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept and Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Alicia Speri.